1: Broadcasting from the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Hello, America.
0: I'm Mark Levin. I can't give you the phone number, because I'm in Israel. There's no point in calling me. I'm not taking any calls. I'm here all week. I'm going to tell you all about it. We're having a magnificent time. We've been at the City of David, which the New York Times doesn't quite get. We'll get to that in a little bit. And we've been to other places, too. But I'm here with a very good friend of mine, an honored guest, the ambassador to the United States from Israel, Ron Dermer. How are you, sir? Good. Great to be with you. It's a ple- We've never done this in studio, have no, we? No, no. So i hard to come to Israel at the Christian Broadcasting Network. In order to talk to my friend, we Ron. Climb six flights of stairs. I'll tell you what. Um, let's jump into this. First of all, I want to talk about Iran. And then there's a lot else that we can talk about. Uh, and by the way, if none of you been to Israel, or if you've not been to Israel, it's unbelievable. It's history. Every step of the way is history. Now, Iran. I'm reading now that Iran has hit the point where they're processing nuclear fuel. At a level they're not supposed to be or had the said they wouldn't be? The stockpile
2: limit of their uranium they exceeded that they agreed to uh, in the nuclear deal that they signed. But this is a violation that they admitted to Iran. Iran violates the deal. The whole deal was actually based on a lie that Iran was not seeking nuclear weapons. They supposedly came clean about all their past. But as the world saw when Israel obtained the nuclear archive from the heart of Tehran uh, over a year ago and when the Prime Minister, Prime Minister Netanyahu presented it to the world, the whole whole deal was based on a lie that Iran was not seeking nuclear weapons. They've always sought nuclear weapons. They continue to seek it. I think you'll see more actually uh, revealed uh, in the near future but in this case, Iran is admitting to violating the nuclear deal by enriching more than the 300 kilos of low enriched uranium Um, that they were allowed to do under this deal. And really the question will be, will the European countries, at least, will they respond to this brazen violation of Iran by snapping back the sanctions? Because that's what they said when the deal was signed. Not necessarily signed, but when the deal was made, the European countries said, if Iran violates this deal, we're going to snap back sanctions. So we'll have to see. And hopefully uh, Europe will follow President Trump's lead. Uh, and impose uh, crippling sanctions on Iran because those sanctions are working. They're creating enormous economic pressures on Iran. Uh, And this is the most dangerous regime in the world, the foremost sponsor of terrorism in the world. And all that money that was going into Iran that they obtained from this nuclear deal and subsequently from their ability to sell oil uh, because the sanctions were removed, that money was using to fuel Iran's war machine in the Middle East. And because of the actions President Trump has taken, that fuel is running dry. Uh, and it's important for Europe to join him, to stand with the United States, and to continue uh, to um,
0: to increase economic pressures on Iran. You touched on it just now. You found a cache of documents. Didn't find them. Got them. Um, which indicated the Iranians were moving ahead with their nuclear program anyway. So this criticism – That we're hearing from the left in our country and in other countries that but for the fact that the president of the United States withdrew from this deal, we wouldn't be having this issue. That's a false point, isn't
2: it? Which issue? That Iran's aggression in the region?
0: That Iran would not be seeking to advance its nuclear-grade weapons activity uh, but for the fact that the president of the United States withdrew from the Iran deal.
2: Well, it's just ridiculous. A statement. First of all, Iran was allowed to advance its nuclear weapons program under this agreement. This agreement that was signed by the leading powers of the world allowed Iran to do research and development on advanced centrifuges. And what the agreement did is it put certain restrictions – On Iran's nuclear program for a limited amount of time. Now, some people, they told me a few years ago, hey, this deal freezes Iran's nuclear program for a decade, 15 years, and that's a good thing. I said it doesn't freeze their program at all. Iran, under this deal, is allowed to do R&D on advanced centrifuges, and centrifuges are what you use to spin uranium. Um, And so they're actually advancing their program. And at the same time, they've also been developing ballistic missiles. And they're going to develop intercontinental ballistic missiles. And your viewers, probably many of you know, Israel's on the same continent as Iran. So those ballistic missiles, intercontinental ballistic missiles, they're not for Israel. They're for you, for the United States. They're for well deep into Europe and across the world. So here you have Iran under this agreement advancing their nuclear program with advanced centrifuges, with um, ballistic missiles, and their hope – is that in 10 to 15 years, which is now only about 6 to 11 years, they can put all the elements in place and have a deliverable nuclear device that they can launch against any country and any place on Earth. That's what their goal is, and that's what they were allowed to do under this deal. It did not block Iran's path to a weapon. That was a statement that was made by many people who supported the deal at the time. Hey, this deal blocks Iran's path to a bomb. False statement. It is simply not true. It actually will ensure that in a few years, Iran will not just have one nuclear weapon, but an entire nuclear arsenal. And in addition, Mark, you remember what this deal did. It also removed all the sanctions. And when the sanctions were removed, that was a tailwind for Iran's aggression in the region. We've had um, over the last few years... I remember listening especially to the European Union's foreign minister, Mogherini, would say this deal made the Middle East safer. Well, that's news to everybody who actually lives in the Middle East. Israel doesn't think so. Our Arab neighbors don't think so. We both said that this deal was terrible, and this deal is a danger to us. And when Israelis and Arabs are on the same page, people should pay attention. We're telling you that this was bad. We are deeply grateful to President Trump for having the courage to walk away from this deal for having the courage to restore sanctions. And I hope at this moment, when the world sees Iran brazenly violate the deal, that those people who supported it will say, you know what, enough is enough. And now we're going to actually join the United States and put sanctions on Iran.
0: And yet I still hear at the left, in my country and in Europe, but particularly my country, people running for office saying, you know, if I'm elected, I'm going to put that deal back in place. First of all, I don't know how you put that deal Back in place. But secondly, why would you put that deal back in place?
2: Well, I don't think a lot of people are actually following what's happening. Uh, I don't think that they've been briefed on what has actually happened since the deal was signed. You know, in 2015, you remember Prime Minister Netanyahu came to Congress and he spoke out against this nuclear deal and said that it was a danger to Israel. Um, and I think he did what a leader of any country facing an existential threat, a threat to the very survival of that country, would do. This is a deal that threatens the survival of Israel because it is a path, a legitimate path for Iran to ultimately have a nuclear arsenal. At that time when Netanyahu spoke before the Congress, there were a lot of question marks. What is this deal going to do? Is Iran going to become more moderate after this deal is made? Are they going to join the community nations or not? Now, there were a lot of people had a lot of hopes about what Iran would do. And it turns out that a lot of those people that thought this deal would make Iran more moderate, that thought this deal would make the prospects of war less likely, were completely wrong. It made the prospects of war much more likely. And we've had a situation in Israel where we've had to strike at Iranian targets in Syria, which is on our northern border, over 200 times. And the problems that we faced from Iran were accelerated and increased because of this deal because now we had a much richer enemy where billions and billions, tens of billions of dollars were pouring into Iran's coffers. You know, a lot of people don't know this, Mark. They think the big money that Iran got from the deal was up front. They say, well, we've got $50 billion or $100 billion or $150 billion. There was a big debate at the time in 2015 exactly how much money it is. That's not the big money in the deal. The big money of this deal was the ability that Iran has under the deal to sell and export oil. And Iran a year ago was exporting nearly three million barrels a day of oil. Last month, Iran is was roughly about a half a million barrels a day in a month. Now that's an over two million barrel a day difference. Now the price of oil I didn't check this morning, but it's probably about sixty-five. $70. $70. That's $130 million a day. 30 days in a month means $4 billion every month. In a year, that is nearly $50 billion. Over 10 to 15 years, that's over half a trillion dollars that's going into Iran's coffers. And I'd love to tell you, Mark, that the Iranian Revolutionary Guard are going to establish a GI Bill for returning members. But that's not what happened in Iran. What they use is they use. Those billions of dollars pouring into Iran, as I said, to fuel this war machine in the Middle East, not just against Israel in Syria and in Lebanon, but also against the Saudis in Yemen, in Iraq. They didn't join the community of nations. They were gobbling up the nations. And because of President Trump's decision, Iran went from having a tailwind at its back to now facing a huge headwind. And that has made Israel much safer. It has made our Arab neighbors much safer. Right now, Iran, over the last few weeks, has tried to lash out because they're worried about all this pressure that is being placed on them. And the right response to Iran's lashing out is to actually increase the pressure. And that will make the Middle East a much safer
0: place. When we come back, I want to ask you this question. When Israel strikes targets in Syria, is Israel concerned that Iran will respond the regulation of big tech, mental illness, and the American medical insurance system. And because America's founding principles are so important, Hillsdale offers Imprimis absolutely free of charge to anyone who requests it. That's right, you can subscribe to Inprimus for free. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to visit inprimus.hillsdale.edu for your free subscription. That's Inprimus, I-M-P-R-I-M-I-S, dot Hillsdale, dot E-D-U. Welcome to Hillsdale. With Ambassador Ron Dermer, Ambassador to the United States from Israel. So my question, Mr. Ambassador, when you strike in Syria on these Iranian military sites or operations, are you concerned? Is the Prime Minister concerned? I mean, prepared for a military reaction?
2: Well, we always take that into account, but Mark, we have no choice, we have to defend ourselves. Iran is a regime that has vowed to destroy the state of Israel and they work every day to advance that goal. And we are not going to allow them to entrench themselves militarily in Syria and to create another front against Israel. They already have one in Lebanon, in southern Lebanon, they've established a beachhead through Hezbollah, which is a terror proxy of Iran which effectively controls Lebanon today. They support Hamas on the southern side of Israel in Gaza, and they have fired uh, thousands of rockets at us. Hezbollah has also fired thousands of rockets at us. And now what they're trying to do in Syria is entrench themselves militarily to create another front against Israel, really to put a noose around Israel's neck. And we're not going to allow them to do it. And any time you engage in military action, there is always – you always have to – calculate and think about a potential response. But there's a price of doing nothing. Just like there's a price of doing something, there's a price of doing nothing. And in Israel's history, the price of doing nothing is usually much greater than the price of doing something. And the prime minister has been very clear, and I think the people of Israel overwhelmingly support it. We're going to do what we have to do to defend ourselves, and that's Syria or anywhere else.
0: Israel's relation with uh, the the Arab states, the Gulf Arab states – Probably better than it's ever been, right? Absolutely. And why is that? I think it's a
2: combination of a few things. The first, if you were looking for a silver lining in the very dark cloud of the nuclear deal with Iran, it was a changing – an acceleration, I should say, of a changing relationship between Israel and the Arab states because that brought – that deal, because it was so dangerous, because it empowered Iran, it actually brought Israel and the Arab world – uh, closer together. Another thing that concerns a lot of our Arab neighbors is the rise of Sunni fanaticism. I mean, Iran is a Shia fanatic power. Um, and there are also Sunni fanatic uh, powers. There was or terror organizations. You had al-Qaeda, which will say Sunni fanaticism 1.0. And then you had uh, ISIS, which is 2.0. And you'll have a 3.0. And these regimes – uh, Sunni regimes are 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 fearful of them. It's important that your listeners understand the biggest victims, in terms of numbers, of militant Islam, not Christians, not Jews. It's Muslims. They kill many of them if if people do not accept their uh, unforgiving creed. And those Arab states are very concerned. So they see on the one hand the rise of Shia fanaticism and the empowering in, in Iran. They see the rise of Sunni fanaticism, and then there is a perception over the last few years that the U.S. is disengaging from the region. And that's a perception that has continued from uh, President Obama to President Trump. People do not believe that America is really engaged. I'm not getting into whether it's true or not. I'm just telling you that's the perception. And so the Arab states look around, and they see these two grave dangers, and they see that the United States maybe is leaving. And then they look at a country like Israel, a, a small country but a powerful country, and they want to move closer to us because we have the same security interests. And there's another thing, Mark, that I think a lot of people don't fully appreciate. Israel's a global technological power. We're a global technological power in agriculture, in water, in cyber – now, Israel accounts for about 20 percent of global invest, private investment in cybersecurity. We're one-tenth of one percent of the world's population, and we're attracting 20 percent of global investment. So Israel's punching 200 times above its weight in cyber. Autonomous vehicles is another area. A lot of the areas of the future, artificial intelligence, you're going to see Israel's technological edge become more and more prominent. And these Arab states – That surround us are looking at a place like Israel. And if you think about it, the Arab boycott of Israel, the traditional Arab boycott of Israel, that's a bit like Oregon, Utah, Colorado, Arizona, New Mexico, and half of Southern California boycotting Silicon Valley. It makes no sense. So if these countries and leaders in these countries want to advance those societies, then Israel is the tremendous partner for them to do so. So in terms of their own security, these states, and in terms of their prosperity, Israel is a great partner. Unfortunately, w- what has happened for over 70 years, they've been poisoning their own populations against Israel. Had they not done that, they'd immediately move to sort of open talks with Israel and probably peace agreements with Israel. But they've been poisoning their populations for many, many decades against Israel. So it's hard for them to turn on a dime. And the hope is that maybe the Trump administration, there's eventually going to be a, a peace initiative that they'll put forward. Maybe they can take advantage of Of this realignment that has happened between Israel and the Arab states. I think the Trump administration has excellent relations with Israel. The alliance between the U.S. and Israel is stronger than it's ever been. They also have good relations with many of the leaders in the Arab world. And I think that should provide some hope and optimism that we could translate those good relationships and also this window of opportunity diplomatically into moving the region forward.
0: All right, Mr. Ambassador, when we come back after the bottom of the hour, I want to talk to you about The City of David, the Palestinians, and the New York Times. I think they all work together irrationally. I don't mean actually, but irrationally. And I want to address that issue. We'll be right back. You know, our nation's oldest colleges were founded to teach students to seek truth, recognize what's beautiful, and hold up what is good. But the vast majority of them have abandoned their missions, locked in the grip of political correctness. They no longer allow free and open discourse. Rejecting the idea of objective truth, they peddle moral and cultural relativism. Thankfully, none of this applies to Hillsdale College. For almost two centuries, Hillsdale has remained true to its original mission, to provide sound learning of the kind essential to preserving civil and religious liberty and intelligent piety. Now, as Hillsdale celebrates its 175th year, it remains committed to offering its students the very best liberal arts education in the land, as well as to extending its mission nationwide through its many outreach efforts on behalf of Liberty. Nationwide, Pursuing truth and defending liberty since 1844, this is Hillsdale College. And let me add, I think so much of Hillsdale College. I donated an original copy of a compilation of the Federalist Papers, which sit today as I speak at the Kirby Center. Hillsdale College, America's college. Ambassador Dermot, <clears throat> There's an ambassador, David Friedman. He's our ambassador to Israel. Great ambassador. Great ambassador. You're both great ambassadors. And um, he's at the City of David function. First of all, what is the City of David? The City of David... We're going to talk more about this next hour.
2: The City of David, Ir David in Hebrew, was the original Jerusalem. Uh, Because if you read in the Bible how David conquered the city and how he went up through the water uh, system of the city, uh, it's very clear that it would, and he would go up also. We learn about going up to the temple. So if you actually go to the old city, and maybe many of your listeners have been to Israel, if they've been in the old city and they go towards the Temple Mount, they'll be walking down. But actually in the Bible, you go up. So the actual original city of Jerusalem was lower. And through these excavations, these archeological excavations, and I think it's it's probably the most remarkable archeological site in the world, they have at the city of David um, sort of uncovered over these last fifteen or twenty years, um, the history of the Jewish people, as they like to say, at the city of David, the place where it all began, and you've seen this happen. And they just uh, last night, I was there as well. And Ambassador Friedman spoke there. They opened officially um, a very large part of the road, the pilgrimage road, uh, and that was the same road that is spoken about in the Bible, um, and not, and also in the New Testament where people read of Jesus going up to the temple and being on that road. So it was very, very powerful uh, to be there last night and to see this official opening and to really uh, uncover 2,000 years of history.
0: It was absolutely incredible. But supposedly we're foreign
2: colonialists in the land of Israel. I, li- I, I, yeah. I like that the Palestinians say that the Jews are Judaifying Jerusalem. That's like saying that the Russians are Russifying Moscow or the Chinese are trying to sinify Beijing. We have been in Jerusalem for 3,000 years, 1,000 years before the birth of Christ, 1,600 years before the birth of Muhammad, King David was ruling in Jerusalem. And who else walked on
0: that road? Who didn't walk on that road? Jesus walked on that
2: road. Yeah, of course, Jesus did. But, I mean, it's a place where the patriarchs of the Jewish people prayed, where our prophets preached, and where our kings ruled. That's – this is – I don't think there's any people in history – who have had a relationship to a city like the Jewish people have had a relationship to Jerusalem. And we kept that relationship alive despite 2,000 years of not having political sovereignty because we turned towards Jerusalem in prayer three times a day. And those of your listeners who've seen a Jewish wedding, and at the end of the Jewish wedding, maybe if they didn't attend one, they saw one in a movie, the bridegroom breaks the glass. Why does he break a glass? The reason he breaks a glass is to remember in this great um, celebration and moment of happiness to remember the destruction of our temples. That's why we break the glass. So we never forgot Jerusalem. Um, and what the city of David has done is bring this, um, this ancient uh, connection alive. And it's, uh, it was remarkable to be there yesterday um, and to be present at this historic moment.
0: So here's what the New York Times correspondent in Jerusalem tweets For years, Palestinians in Silwan, East Jerusalem, have complained that the walls of their homes have been cracking because of an underground archaeological dig led by a right-wing settler group. The dig was unveiled on Sunday, and look who swung the first sledgehammer, and they're talking about America's ambassador to to Israel, David Friedman. Now, Friedman is pointing out – hold on a second. First of all, that that was not a real wall <laughs> that I swung that hammer at. It's paper mache, but but even so. This is sixty feet underground. This is an, an unbelievable archaeological project. This is about world history for the entire world. The birth of Judaism, the birth of Christianity, this is the place. Pretty much. And they're saying, Why are you digging here? Why are you digging under these homes? Why are you digging under, under? This is the New York Times. This is the best they could do. It's about right wingers. It's about cracking foundations. Palestinian homes. Now I must tell you, I was there. I didn't see any homes cracking. I didn't see any foundations coming down. I didn't see any. It was peaceful. It was beautiful. What do you make of the New York Times coverage of of Israel of the the American relationship with Israel? It seems incredibly negative.
2: Well, look, as for the coverage of the events yesterday, look, no one's going to remember that story a week from now uh, or a year from now or a decade from now, but hundreds of years from now, people will remember the opening of that road. Uh, it was a historic event. There's not that many things that you can say you will be remembered 500 years from now. That tweet won't be one of them. Um, as for, you know, the Times coverage of Israel, I've actually spoken about this publicly, um, a few weeks ago, um, after this cartoon came out that depicted the prime minister of Israel in in this grotesque anti-Semitic way, and the New York Times has an Israel problem. There's no question about it. And their problem is their attempt to demonize Israel week after week after week after week after week. And it has it's not something that's new. It didn't start today. It didn't start with uh, President Trump or even President Obama. It's been going for a long time with The Times' coverage of Israel and its attempt to demonize uh, Israel. And… Why do you think that is? That's… We only have, what, eight-minute segments or something? That's that's hours and hours and hours of conversation. Well, I think what you're seeing happen today is a resurgence and really a return of anti-Semitism. I mean, a lot of people thought that after the Holocaust, anti-Semitism, at least in Western societies, was a thing of the past. And the truth is we had about a half century where in most circles in the West, what was once called the West, it was politically incorrect to go after Jews. And I think now you're seeing the return of this ancient hatred. And now sometimes it's masked behind hatred towards Israel. Um, but there, it's definitely, it's there. And the attempt to demonize Israel and to disproportionately cast it as a force for evil, that is simply an old antisemitism with a brand new face. And it once was singling out the Jewish people, accusing them of all sorts of wild things, constantly trying to demonize them, uh, to hold the Jews out as a force for evil. And now what you're seeing is the attempt to do this to the one and only Jewish state in the world. Uh, And it's absurd. And it's totally disproportional to anything that actually happens. Uh, in our region, but week after week after week after week. And what's interesting to me is the New York Times will sometimes write against you know – they'll do an editorial against anti-Semitism as if – if you're going to demonize the one and only Jewish state week after week, month after month, year after year, and not expect that to lead to an increase of anti-Semitism, you're kidding themselves. And the New York Times is a, it's a paper that calls on political leaders – to not contribute to a climate of hate. What have they done for Israel? This is the story that you report yesterday. I mean, I'm not even – I didn't even read that story, frankly, because I'm I'm technically supposed to be on vacation here in Israel. So I don't on my vacation read The New York Times. It's hard enough to read it during the work week. But I think it's shameful what they have done. And I don't think that they have fully come to grips with how they have contributed so much to the problem because it is supposed to be the paper record. And people take it seriously because – it was for so many decades. People looked at it as the paper record, but they have a very problematic history when it comes to covering Jewish issues. There's a big story there. People know, some people know, maybe your listeners know, about how the Times buried the Holocaust. Oh, largely. my listeners know all about this. And so this is not something new for the Times, but um, I think it has gotten to, uh, it's become more and more
0: extreme. Do you think in part, it's because Israel now can defend itself. Israel now has a strong military. Israel – it was one thing when Israel was sort of the underdog, the nation kind of that could defend itself perhaps. But now it's – you could wipe a country off the face of the earth.
2: I think there is something to what you're saying and I put it this way. Look, the Jews made many contributions to religious ideas. Um, over the centuries. But if I could sum up our contribution to political ideas, we were the people throughout history that rejected the idea that might makes right. And we rejected it, whether it was Pharaoh's or Caesar's and certainly a Fuhrer. We refused to accept that principle. Unfortunately, there is a zeitgeist today that you see in certain quarters, particularly among young people, that believes that might makes wrong. And that's also totally false, and we have to reject that just as we reject the principle that might makes right. We have to reject the principle that might makes wrong. Now, as Israel rises as a power, becomes a strong country, then all of a sudden it is cast as being evil and sort of power and justice become like buckets in the well. I think it's not just a danger. This philosophy that might make wrong is not just a danger marked to Israel. I think it's a danger to the United States. It's the most powerful country of the world, and I think it's a force for good in the world. And those people who don't think America is a force for good—not perfect, Israel's not perfect, America's not perfect. There's a long, you know, his uh, 100 years. You had slavery in America. 150 years before women had a right to vote. Two centuries before you had civil rights. So America has its imperfections. But those people who don't think America has been this great force for good in the world. They just don't know any history. Look at how other great powers have behaved. I watched a few weeks ago I saw President Trump and other world leaders meet at Normandy. Those people who think America is a force for bad in the world, they should go to Normandy and say that. Think about what America has done in saving the world from evil and standing up to communism and doing so much good around the world. There's never been a power like this. And the Jewish people have been blessed that America has been the preeminent power in the world. The state of Israel, the one and only Jewish state, has been blessed. And I I hope America will will stay that power for the next, uh, I'll give it another millennia, uh, millennium at least. Um, But I think that for many people, power and justice are buckets in a well. And I think it's a dangerous idea. As I said, it's dangerous for Israel. I think it's dangerous for the United States. And, And it might be that a lot of people who write and work at The New York Times have that view and they're going to see America in a certain way because of that, and they're going to see Israel in a certain way, and they may see other powerful countries in a certain way. I think that's part of it, but I also think it's this old anti-Semitism re-emerging. We'll be right
0: back.
3: Every
0: human being has a common problem. How do I live well? Our happiness and well-being depends on how we answer that question. Hillsdale College President Larry Arne argues that the best book ever written on this subject is Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics. And a new free online course from Hillsdale College shares Aristotle's teachings that will help you lead the most complete, happy life possible. Register for this free course, Introduction to Aristotle's Ethics, How to Lead a Good Life, featuring lessons from the greatest self-help book ever written at levinforhillsdale.com. In just 10 on-demand videos, each only 30 minutes long, you'll learn how to confront the chief obstacles to happiness and make the choices that build good character. Aristotle presents a guide for securing a virtuous life. And if you take this free course from Hillsdale and heed Aristotle's advice, your life will change for the better. You can learn how to lead a good life just as every Hillsdale College student does. It's yours for free. At LevinforHillsdale.com, that's L-E-V-I-N for Hillsdale.com. Now, Ambassador Ron Dermott, you were born in Miami. Miami Beach. Miami, well, close. We're sticklers about that. Miami we're Beach. We're on the other side of the bridge. So you were raised in Miami Beach, and it didn't hurt you in any way. That's pretty good.
2: Yeah, we and have, we have a big claim to fame. In Miami Beach, an intellectual claim to fame. What's that? That Churchill wrote his Iron Curtain speech actually while vacationing on Miami Beach.
0: I thought it was Missouri.
2: He gave it in Missouri, but he wrote it in Miami Beach. We're very proud of that.
0: So while he was taking in the sun? Exactly. uh, Your father was mayor. Your brother, older brother, was mayor. And you came to Israel. And my son is named mayor. Your son's named mayor. Maybe your son should be named prime minister or president. (laughs) Uh, and he's a great. Doesn't kid. work in Hebrew. <laughs> okay. Mayor works in Hebrew. Now, and you came to Israel permanently when?
2: Uh, when I was 25 in 1996.
0: Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of former Americans in Israel now, aren't there?
2: Yeah, I don't know the exact number, but not huge numbers. No, um, no. I can around three thousand a year will uh, we'll move to Israel, but it's a large Jewish population in America. It's about five and a half or six million people. About 10 years ago, Israel passed the United States as, as having the largest Jewish community in the world. And that was the first time in 1900 years, nearly 1900 years, that Israel had the largest Jewish community in the world
0: since the days of Bar Kokhba. Well, of course. Now, let me <laughs> ask you this question. <laughs> How many Arab citizens are in Israel? Arab citizens under 2
2: million, It's either 1.8 maybe million or 1.9 million. I don't remember the exact number. Uh, do they get the number. vote? Yes, they do.
0: For prime minister? The For Knesset? O-
2: yeah, sure. They're the only um, Arabs who are full citizens in the way – in the Middle East, who are full citizens in the way that Americans would understand, mm. where they have all the same rights and the same rights as Jews uh, in Israel. Jews, Arabs, Druze, Christians – and there are, of course, Arab Muslims and there are Arab Christians, two populations. Most of the Arabs in Israel are Muslims, and, but uh, um, a percentage are Christian. And Israel actually is the only country in the Middle East with a growing and thriving Christian community. In the last few years, because of the rise of ISIS and these fanatic movements, you have seen the decimation of ancient Christian communities in the Middle East. A hundred years ago, Christians accounted for about 20 percent of the Middle East, and today they're under 4 um, percent which is, I think, a great tragedy. And Israel's really the one place where this, as I said, has this growing and thriving Christian community about five times more than uh, Christians in there were in 1948 when Israel was established.
0: And you protect, your military protects some of the most important Christian sites in the world. Isn't that correct?
2: Yeah. Well, not just our military, but our police. And yeah, we're very proud of the record that we've had in protecting religious freedom. You know, you can if, if, if one of your listeners comes to Israel, they can go and uh, obviously pray in the Western Wall, but they can also pray at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, or they can go uh, pray in the Al-Aqsa Mosque. And that wasn't something that people could do for centuries in this, in, in this city, Jerusalem. And Israel uh, takes its responsibility very seriously in being the keeper of all these uh, religious holy sites and making sure that everyone has uh, access to them. And that's something new in the history of Jerusalem. Uh, The other powers that ruled here did not give access to members of different What happened when the Jordanians controlled the area? Well, Jordan Jordan, um, conquered. They would be occupiers. No one called them occupiers at the time. But they occupied the old city of Jerusalem uh, from 1948 to 1967. And they destroyed every single synagogue that was there. And by agreement at the time... Um, after the War of Independence ended, they were supposed to allow uh, Israelis to go – Jews to go pray there, and they uh, refused to do that. They never actually abided by their commitments. And they actually took some of the headstones from the Mount of Olives, and they used that to pave officers the
0: trains. What's the Mount of Olives?
2: The Mount of Olives – all your Christian listeners definitely know what the Mount of Olives is. It's the probably the most uh, important – I know too. You know. I, you I know. know. That's what's, what's called you. the softball. but. Yeah. It is the uh, most important um, uh, cemetery in the world for Jews. And uh, there's a lot of different messianic beliefs around it, and it certainly has a unique place in Christian tradition as well. Um, And I just think people should look at Israel's record um, and be very grateful. All peoples around the world, anyone who believes in religious freedom, should look at Israel's record as really something to admire, that despite facing threats – Faced by no other democracy on earth, Israel has been able to protect the religious sites of all great faiths. And the last thing you would want to do is divide Jerusalem and to allow for fanatic groups to get a hold of these religious sites. Because we've seen what happens in the Middle East when these religious fanatics get a hold of the uh, holy sites of other groups. They destroy them immediately. You saw that happen with the Taliban. You saw that happen with ISIS. Uh, and Israel will never allow that to happen.
0: Mr. Ambassador, thank you for your time. It's been great. You're terrific. Our best to the prime minister. And God bless you, sir. Thank you. Great to be with you. We'll be great right to back. Be with a great one. There you go. We'll be right back.
1: He's here. He's here. Now broadcasting from the underground command post in the bowels of a hidden bunker somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin.
0: Hello, America. I'm Mark Levin, still in Israel for the entire week. I hope you're doing well. We're trying to bring to you really top-notch guests to talk about top-notch issues that I think are going to be very, very important. You know, when we did this two years ago, I recall... It was some of the most popular radio that I've ever done. And one of the gentlemen I had here before was Zev Ornstein. Now, Zev Ornstein is the director of internal affairs, or is that international affairs? International affairs for the City of David. The key is he's become a very good friend of mine, and he is an expert on all matters City of David. Now, why do I bring up the City of David? You heard me discuss it briefly with the ambassador, Ambassador Dermer uh, from Israel, because this is really the core of the early beginning of the jewish faith the christian faith many faiths really and they have been doing an archaeological project there for many years and they have found things that are absolutely incredible including in the last year and of course they're attacked by the new york times and i'll get to that later in more detail But Zev, it's a pleasure to have you here, my friend.
3: It is a pleasure to be here once again with you. Let's start from the beginning. Explain what the city of David is. Up until 150 years ago, when people thought, where is the original biblical city of Jerusalem? The city synonymous with people like King David, King Solomon, prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, the place where the kings from the Bible ruled. Where the prophets preached, everyone envisioned one place. That place was the old city of Jerusalem, surrounded by the iconic old city walls, which are in fact old. They're about 450 plus years old. However, Jerusalem is about 4,000 years old. So 1867, Queen Victoria of England wants to discover the treasures of the Bible, the Ark of the Covenant, for instance. And so she sends a man by the name of Captain Charles Warren to the Promised Land to find those treasures. Now, if you're going to search for the treasures of the Bible in the Holy Land, you're going to go to Jerusalem. And if you're going to search one place in Jerusalem, you'll go to the Temple Mount, the biblical Mount Moriah. And that's, in fact, what Charles Warren does. Except in 1867, the Ottomans are ruling here, the Muslims. And they say, Charles, we're sure you're a great guy, but you're not going to dig up the Temple Mount. And to this day, due to religious sensitivities, political sensitivities, there's been virtually no archaeological activity on the Temple Mount. So Charles Warren says, if I can't excavate on the Temple Mount, I'll do the next best thing to excavate near it. What's the Temple Mount? The Temple Mount is the site where the two temples mentioned in the Bible stood the Temple of Solomon, which stood for over 400 years, destroyed by the Babylonians two and a half thousand years ago. It's the spot where, according to the book of Genesis, the binding of Isaac took place. King Solomon, of course, was the son of King David, and he's the one who made Jerusalem the capital of the Jewish people and gave it its significance that it's carried over the last 3,000 years. And after the first temple, the Temple of Solomon is destroyed. About se- Who destroyed the first temple? The Babylonians. Okay. Two and a half thousand years ago. The second temple is rebuilt. And then after a number of centuries, as we get to the first century CE, King Herod comes along and he likes to make things bigger and better. And so he expands uh, the temple atop the Temple Mount and he makes the makes Jerusalem in general uh, a place that was, according to Josephus and other historians and the Talmud, one of the most beautiful cities of, of its day. So it's the second temple. That's the second in temple. In the same place. Same exact place. And bigger. Bigger and better. Now, what's the Temple Mount? So the Temple Mount, the biblical Mount Moriah, that is the crown of Jerusalem. One of the things that the Bible teaches us, unlike other ancient civilizations where the king was essentially God. Whether you're the pharaoh or the ruler, you could do no wrong. You were the divine figure. What the Bible teaches us is something a little bit different. That if Jerusalem is where the king was ruling from, above the king's palace was God's home. And that was atop the Temple Mount. That the king should never have illusions that the king was number one. Because in the Bible, what it teaches us is that God is number one. And even the king is accountable to somebody. And that's to God. What today is sitting on the Temple Mount? So today on the Temple Mount, you have the Al-Aqsa Mosque, the number three holy site for Islam after Mecca and Medina, and you also have the Dome of the Rock. That's the spot, according to Islamic tradition, where Muhammad went on his night journey, learned the tradition of Muslim prayer, and shared it with those of the Muslim faith. So it was built on the holy Jewish site. That's right. One of the ways to show that your god has defeated other gods is to build your holy places on their holy places. And in the Middle East, uh, that is a very popular thing to do. Sadly, throughout the region, uh, Christians have been largely driven out of the Middle East, churches destroyed uh, by ISIS and others, Bethlehem, which is uh, the birthplace of Jesus. That is a place that used to be 30 years ago, 80% Christian majority. Today, about 15, 20% Christian minority The Church of the Nativity uh, in the early 2000s was used as a base for terrorists who took over the church and used it as a terror base hideout. So sadly, there is not a lot of respect when it comes to uh, the Islamic leadership in this region for the Christians who have been living in this region for thousands of years, let alone for the Jews who have also been here for thousands of years. Who is in charge of the Temple Mount today? Today, it's officially part of sovereign Israel, according to Israeli law, just like Tel Aviv or Haifa or anywhere else. But it is day-to-day under the control of the Islamic Waqf. And that is an agreement that Israel entered into in the aftermath of the Six-Day War in 1967.
0: So the Palestinian regime, basically.
3: Basically, people who are certainly um, aligned with with that ideology, yes. So tell me more.
0: We've got the Second Temple – what happens to the Second Temple?
3: The Second Temple is destroyed by the Romans in the year 70 CE, and after that— how many, how many Jews are killed there? Historians say well over a million. Now think
0: about that. Well over a million Jews are killed in this one spot. Many of them are crucified. Yes. To the point where they're running out of trees. Correct. Right? And the Romans are particularly brutal over a long period of time. In the massacres, and the way they're massacring, right? That's right.
3: And some of the Jews are hiding out where near the end? So in the city of David, there is a pilgrimage road. This is a road that has a lot of significance. And just like in New York City, beneath the road, you either have sewers or subways. So in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, beneath the main thoroughfare, there was a drainage channel. And what Josephus describes and what archaeology has confirmed is that the last Jews of Jerusalem in the year 70 who were running for their lives, hiding from the Romans, took refuge in the drainage channel, in the sewer beneath the main thoroughfare in Jerusalem, in the city of David. And the Romans find out about it, and they come with sledgehammers, and they break open the road. And they find, according to Josephus, 2,000 Jews, the last 2,000 Jews of Jerusalem, hiding in the drainage channel. Archaeologists find whole cooking pots, meaning the Jews who were there were living there perhaps for days, weeks, maybe even for months, until the Romans find them all, and according to Josephus, kill them all. Archaeologists find also a Roman sword and scabbard, presumably one that was used to kill the last 2,000 Jews of Jerusalem. At the same time, in the same drainage channel, we find the earliest etching ever discovered of a menorah, which if you're familiar with the Hanukkah festival... It's the candelabra that Jews light for eight nights uh, during usually the winter months around Christmas time. And it is also one of the most famous temple vessels uh, that adorn the temple, part of the temple service. And it's also the national emblem of the state of Israel. So one of the earliest etchings of the menorah was found, believed to, to have been etched by perhaps one of the last Jews who, who were hiding from the Romans at the time and met it, uh, an unfortunate end. At the same time, we're here having this conversation today.
0: So the city of David. Modern historians didn't always believe or didn't know about a city of David. So tell us more about this, this British archaeologist.
3: So he now has to try and find something because he does not want to go back to the queen and tell the queen that he came to Jerusalem, ascended to Mount Moriah, the Temple Mount, and now he can't dig and so he goes home. So he says, if I can't excavate atop the Temple Mount, I'll do the next best thing, which is to excavate near it. And so he comes down the slopes of the Temple Mount, and he's walking through the Kidron Valley just south of the Temple Mount. And as he's walking through this valley, he comes across an ancient spring, a spring that's flowing still to this day, the Gihon Spring, mentioned in the Bible. It's been flowing for thousands of years. And he sees that the the spring is flowing through an ancient man-made tunnel. Now, he doesn't realize it, but he begins to walk through a tunnel 2,700 years old, engineered by the biblical King Hezekiah. We know that based on an inscription found at the midway point of the tunnel, which describes the two teams of diggers, the engineers, who were working their way towards each other, and the moment where they met without GPS, without radar, without sonar technology, that they were able to channel through rock a 533-meter-long tunnel, and they were able to connect in the middle, and this was the point where they celebrate, and it confirms the biblical accounts of the same events dating back to the time of the biblical King Hezekiah, direct descendant of King David. And this very same King Hezekiah, we have discovered next to the city of David, a seal bearing his name on it, which says Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah. He was a real historical figure.
0: So city of David predates what we consider today Jerusalem, correct?
3: Well, the city of David was the original Jerusalem. Was
0: the original Jerusalem. Now, when we return, I want to continue with this because something very, very special happened here over the weekend that I want the American people to be aware of, which is one of the reasons I'm here, and also how it was reported on and basically dismissed, if not demeaned and degraded by The New York Times, among others. I'm talking to Zev Ornstein, director of international affairs, City of David. This is fascinating stuff, folks. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Mark
3: Levin.
0: 833 ring bhn get 15% off your first order with promo code levin that's brickhouse levin.com or call 833 ring bhn promo code levin about the city, some very uh, important people gathered here over the weekend and met at the city of David because of some uh, new discoveries, some incredible event. Tell us about that.
3: So, 2004, at the southern end of the city of David, which is the historic site of biblical Jerusalem, there's a sewage pipe beneath the road. The sewage pipe bursts, and now the Jerusalem municipality has to send in construction crews to repair the sewage pipe. But, The city of David is in the heart of the Holy Basin where all the holy places for Jews and Christians are within Jerusalem, one square mile radius. What is there? Give us an example. For instance, aside from the Temple Mount, the Western Wall, the Southern Steps, you have the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, the Garden of Gethsemane, the Mount of Olives, the city of David. Virtually every site that makes Jerusalem Jerusalem for Christians and Jews is within this area known as the Holy Basin. And so this pipe breaks Sewage pipe And they burst. send in the, uh, the, the civil servants. That's right. And the bulldozers are there. The dump trucks are doing their work. But in Jerusalem, certainly in this part of Jerusalem, you can't only send in construction crews. You also have to send in archaeologists. And the archaeologists are supervising, and they hear some scraping and scratching. It doesn't sound right. So they clear everyone out. And it turns out that in repairing the sewage pipe, they had inadvertently uncovered a set of ancient stone steps. And they look identical to only one other set of stairs found not far from there, up at the southern steps of the Temple Mount, both 2,000 years old, both dating back to the time of the second temple. And these were uniquely designed steps. Absolutely. Steps, again, that you did not find anywhere else in the country from the time of King Herod. And they realized there must be something in common, something special about these steps. And they they understood the steps above were the southern steps leading up to the entryway of the Temple Mount. And they realized the steps below were the steps leading down to the ancient Pool of Siloam. Now, the Pool of Siloam has deep significance for Christians and for Jews. In the Christian scriptures, it is the place where the story of the healing of the blind man takes place in the city of David. And in the Bible, it talks about that there are three times a year, Passover, Pentecost, Tabernacles, when all of Israel would have to go on pilgrimage up to the temple on the Temple Mount. Now, the Bible also tells us before one can go up on pilgrimage to the temple on the Temple Mount, One must purify himself or herself, and so you would have to go to a ritual bath. The Pool of Siloam was the size of two Olympic-sized swimming pools. Why so large? The historian Josephus tells us that 2,000 years ago, on a festival such as Passover, you would have had 2.7 million people going on pilgrimage. That's a lot of people. So now the archaeologist said, If now we know where the Pool of Siloam is, at the southern end of the city of David, biblical Jerusalem. If we know where the temple stood atop the Temple Mount, some 700 meters to the north of the pool. So they said, how did all the hundreds of thousands, if not millions of pilgrims, 2,000 years ago, get from the pool up to the temple? So they widen the excavation. And what they discover is what was celebrated yesterday. They discover the ancient pilgrimage road. This is the road that our ancestors, whether you're Jewish or Christian alike, this is the road that our ancestors walked on when they went on pilgrimage up to the temple on the Temple Mount. The road we walked on yesterday, Mark, it's not a road that kind of looks like that one or is near that one. That is the pilgrimage road atop the very same same flagstones that our ancestors walked 2,000 years ago, literally walking the footsteps of the Bible.
0: It's so incredible because you can touch these things now. You can touch the stone. You can touch the walls. You can see the pottery, pieces of pottery, the coins burned into into the ground as a result of what the Romans had done. I mean, the evidence is overwhelming. Isn't that why there are forces in the world, including in my country, that don't want this archaeological project to, to move forward. I mean, when you read the New York Times, they're very upset that you might be damaging Palestinian homes. Why don't you explain to my audience, and perhaps this New York Times reporter who no doubt is listening, what you do when you're down there painstakingly digging? Because I saw an entire steel infrastructure that
3: has to be built to ensure that there isn't damage above ground. Whether a person is in Rome, Greece, Jerusalem, cities that have a history going back thousands of years. One of the challenges is how do you preserve the modern city while at the same time uncovering a history that has significance to some billions of people around the world? And what we've come up with in Jerusalem, in the city of David, in the excavation of the pilgrimage road, is a way to preserve modern Jerusalem, the neighborhood that exists within the city of David today while at the same time making the archaeology which has significance to billions of people, Jews, Christians, and others, making it accessible to all those people to come and see it for themselves. And therefore, in this excavation, we've invested a tremendous amount of resources, not specifically in the archaeology, but in the engineering that allows the archaeology to take place and ensures that the homes above the excavation are preserved and stable and secure. In this way, there's the best of both worlds, modern Jerusalem above, and giving access to ancient Jerusalem below. Can, can, you, can you imagine purposely being
0: ignorant about what's going on below the ground? I mean, I think to myself, what was supposed to happen? They go in there and they fix the pipe that's leaking. They see a step or a set of stairs that may well have incredible historical significance, religious experience. You know what? Let's cover this up. Let's not do it. Would any serious country conduct itself that way? No. No. And Ambassador David Freeman had a good line. He said, uh, We seem to know how to build subways under neighborhoods. I think we can do an archaeological dig as well. I've got a lot more on this when we return. Isn't it fascinating? History's fascinating to me. With Zev Orenstein, Director of International Affairs, City of David. We'll be right back. Yeah! Do you wake up in the morning feeling sluggish and have to drag yourself through your day? Do you feel bloated, tired, and out of shape? Eating healthy is a habit, but most of us don't really know exactly what we should be eating, right? How much we should be eating, and how to properly prepare it. This is why I drink Field of Greens every morning before I start my day. Just one scoop of Field of Greens has a full serving of real, USDA-certified organic fruits and vegetables. Helps boost your immunity using antioxidants, prebiotics, and probiotics. Now this is real food, not some fake supplement lab powder. Welcome back, folks. I'm in Israel. Remember, here's something interesting. There are over 2 million burglaries reported every year. That's one every 13 seconds. And what's crazy is that only one in five homes have security. Well, maybe uh, because most companies don't make it that easy. That's why Simply Safe is transforming home security by breaking down those barriers to get you the best, most reliable, and comprehensive protection available anywhere. Simply Safe protects every door. Every window, every room, with 24-7 professional monitoring. Their police dispatch is up to 3.5 times faster because they use video verification. And Simply Safe has no contracts or hidden fees. The system is designed to blend right into your home. No wires, no drilling. It's easy to order, easy to set up, usually in under an hour. Plus, prices are always fair and honest. Around-the-clock monitoring is just 15 bucks a month. Visit simplysafemark.com to get free shipping and a 60 day risk free trial. You've got nothing to lose. Go right now. Be sure you go to simplysafemark.com so they know that we sent you. That's simplysafemark.com, simplysafemark.com. Zev Ornstein of the City of David. Why was it important for the United States to send so many representatives to this City of David event? I saw. In addition to the ambassador from the United States to Israel, I saw the ambassador from Denmark, the ambassador from France, the ambassador from Portugal. There were many others. I saw uh, Jason Greenblatt, assistant to the president of the United States, uh, and many others.
3: Why do you think? I think what this administration, the Trump administration, understands, what Ambassador David Friedman and all the other dignitaries from the United States who attended yesterday's celebration of the pilgrimage road in the city of David, what they understand is that it was not only a celebration for Israel or for the Jewish people, but that America is built upon the Judeo-Christian heritage. That heritage, those values, have their roots in Jerusalem. And therefore, the city of David in general, and the pilgrimage road in particular, it's not simply a Jewish heritage site or an Israeli heritage site. It's an American heritage site. Because this is where... The people, the ideas that helped to shape America, as we know it today, this is where its roots are. And therefore, we view it very much as it's a Gettysburg of the United States, just 6,000 miles away. And we view ourselves as the stewards of that heritage, of our shared heritage, that at the heart of the special U.S.-Israel relationship, at the bedrock, is our shared connection to the heritage and history of Jerusalem, And that's why there were so many dignitaries from the Trump administration, because this administration understands the significance of Jerusalem, not just to its ally Israel, but to the hundreds of millions of Americans who have a deep and abiding love for Jerusalem.
0: By the way, just to clarify, those were American ambassadors to those other countries who showed up and who were very, very interested in seeing what took place. UNESCO... This is a U.N. organization. What is
3: UNESCO? It's the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization.
0: Which is really ironically named. Uh, The United States withdrew from it a year, year and a half ago under the Trump administration. And essentially what UNESCO said was stop doing what you're doing, that the Jews and the Christians do not have a particular attachment to this area, uh, and they didn't want any more archaeological activity taking place, which is incredible. This is, this is an, an arm of the United Nations. And then I read the New York Times correspondent, uh, his tweet the other day, which I responded to myself, which is essentially mocking what took place. Uh, he's concerned that – and repeats a, a, a lie. That uh, somehow the Palestinian foundations and their homes are being affected. He has no facts, no reports, no nothing. This is just one of those things that, that that is spread. And you pointed out the the extent to which you folks really are as careful as you can be. And then I think it was today, maybe it was yesterday. I've lost my my time here between America and Israel. Uh, he does a bigger article on how now. The entire peace process is going to be described how the American ambassador, Ambassador David Friedman, using a sledgehammer, it's a short sledgehammer, uh, that picture of him sort of sets the stage for the peace negotiations. First of all, that was a papier-mâché wall, right? That's correct. That's correct. That's number one. Number two, he's participating in an archaeological dig figuratively, correct? Correct. Number three, that is there, and it was there a lot longer and a lot earlier than the New York Times was there. That is the city of David and what you're uncovering. Does it concern you when the modern media treats such a remarkable and magnificent event the way that they do it? I don't want to put you on the spot, but to me it is amazing. You pointed out – you don't get this – the archaeological digs around Athens, around Rome – or Bath, or any of these places. But Jerusalem, for some reason, the birthplace of Judaism, the birthplace of Christianity, we basically have the New York Times saying, cover it up, put the dirt back,
3: we don't want to know. What do you make of this? It's not surprising. It's disappointing in the sense that there are different viewpoints on what the future of Jerusalem should be. Now, I have my own views of of what the future of Jerusalem should be, and others are entitled to their beliefs. But what's happening at UNESCO, what's happening with much of the Palestinian leadership and within many of the media outlets today, is this idea of casting Israel as some type of foreign entity in the region, that Jews are a bunch of white European colonialists that were occupiers, that were foreigners in this region. And therefore, when you talk about the peace process, it's essentially the idea of how to return stolen property to the Palestinians. Now, what's the problem with that? Certainly when it comes to Jerusalem. The problem with that is, is a place like the city of David. Because contrary to these UNESCO resolutions that say that Jerusalem is exclusively significant to Islam, and which goes on to condemn the archaeological excavations in the city of David, the reason they're doing that is because every day in the excavations taking place in the city of David, antiquities are being unearthed that show the connection of Jews and of Christians to Jerusalem, not simply as a matter of faith, but as a matter of fact, where the science, the archaeology, is corroborating so much of what's written in the Bible. Now, if you want to tell a story that Jews are foreigners in Jerusalem and therefore it needs to be taken away from Israel, well, then all these discoveries are quite inconvenient. And therefore, what there are those who are trying to do is to shut down the archaeology, to an attempt to delegitimize the archaeology because they know that the more people who come to the city of David, the more people, and soon it will be millions, who will walk along the flagstones, the original flagstones of the pilgrimage road, they will see that the emperor... Has no clothing.
0: Remind us who walked on
3: that road? I mean, this is a road that 2,000 years ago, almost certainly Jesus would have walked on that road, along with uh, countless hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Jews, who were in Jerusalem worshiping at the temple that stood atop the Temple Mount. And people will be able to walk on this road. I, the idea is not for this to be a museum, this is a very alive site. The idea is to allow as many people as possible from all faiths and backgrounds to be able to connect with their heritage, with their roots, to walk in the footsteps of of history of the Bible. And it's real. You could see it. You could touch it. It's not simply a matter of faith. It's a matter of fact. If
0: people want to learn more about the City of David and the City of David Foundation, which is where you work, where do they go?
3: cityofdavid.org.il
0: cityofdavid.org.il Now, I'm giving you more attention than the New York Times ever would, just so you know, by giving out that site. And if people want to support this archaeological dig, these are expensive. And you get a mix of private support, governmental support, but you rely heavily on private support. Can they go to that website? Absolutely. Cityofdavid.org.il? Correct. Now, when did you come to Israel?
3: I've been living in Israel for the last 16 and a half years.
0: Where were you? You were raised where originally?
3: I was born in New Jersey and spent time in New Jersey, New York.
0: And why did you come to Israel?
3: I'm, I'm blessed that I was able to be born and raised in one of the greatest countries of the world. And unlike throughout history, many of, of my Jewish brothers and sisters who have had to flee various countries because of persecution, anti-Semitism, and find other places to live, And today there's a blessing that there's Israel. I didn't have to run. I could have stayed and lived a very full Jewish life in the United States of America. But I also know, based on my my upbringing and my faith, that Israel's home for the Jewish people. And I wanted to be in the place where Jewish history was unfolding and be a part of taking a lead role in the story of the Jewish people in the newly reestablished Jewish state of Israel in our ancestral homeland. And I still love America, and I spend probably about three you months. You spend a now. lot of
0: time in America because that's where I see you most of the it's time. spend
3: a lot of time in America, but it's a real blessing that I get to still maintain my connection with the United States, a country that I love deeply, and at the same time get to represent Jerusalem and the city of David and my people's ancestral homeland where we've been living for thousands and thousands of years. Mm-hmm.
0: Here's the bottom line. You need fresh fruits and vegetables in your diet, which is why I recommend that you start taking Field of Greens by Brickhouse Nutrition. Just one scoop of Field of Greens has a full serving of real USDA-certified organic fruits and vegetables. It helps boost your immunity using antioxidants, prebiotics, and probiotics. This is real food, not some fake supplement lab powder. Just read the Nutrition Facts panel on the side. Governments, ad companies all slurp up your data. That's why I recommend getting the software I trust to protect my own online activity, ExpressVPN. Their apps use powerful encryption to secure your data. ExpressVPN runs in the background of your computer or phone, and then you use the internet just like you normally would. You download the app, click to connect, and you're protected. It's that simple. Never go online without ExpressVPN. You shouldn't. ExpressVPN is the fastest VPN, costs less than 7 bucks per month and comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. Take back your online privacy like I did with ExpressVPN. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get 3 months free at expressvpn.com/mark. That's expressvpn.com/mark for 3 months free with a 1-year package. Visit expressvpn.com slash mark to learn more. Zev Ornstein, City of David.
3: Tell us about King David. Who was he? King David was a shepherd. Some of the greatest leaders in the Bible were shepherds who perhaps it was through taking care of a flock, through that solitude that comes with being a shepherd, being out in the wilderness. Whatever it was, some of the greatest leaders in all the Bible The patriarchs, Moses, David, they were all shepherds. And we're introduced to David as as a young boy. And as he's growing up, he's not yet in, he's not a soldier yet, but he has experience in the wilderness. And his brothers, they're all in the army. And the Philistines were the arch rivals of Israel some 3,000 years ago. And there's the famous story of when the Philistines go to battle against Israel, led by King Saul. And the Philistines, they had a warrior. His name was Goliath, some 9, 10 feet tall. And this Goliath, he was uh, a formidable opponent. And every day for 40 days, the Bible tells us, Goliath would come out. We're in the Ella Valley, just west of Jerusalem. And you have on one hill, the Philistines encamped. On the other hill, King Saul and ancient Israel. And you would have basically a duel where... Goliath would come out and say, you send me one champion of yours and he and I will do battle. And whoever wins, well, that will determine who wins the war. And for 40 days, Goliath would come out and taunt Israel, taunt the God of Israel, mock. And there was no response. Israel was terrified. And one day, David is sent by his father, Jesse, to the front to bring supplies to his brothers. And when he gets there, he hears the taunting, the mocking. And he looks around waiting for somebody to do something, just like Moses did in ancient Egypt when he saw the taskmaster beating the Hebrew slave. And no one did anything there either. And so like Moses, David looks around. He says, well, if nobody's going to do something, I'm going to do something. And he says in one of the most famous lines in the Bible, who is this uncircumcised Philistine who mocks the name of the living God? God. And he says, I'm gonna go and I'm gonna do something about it. They look at him, they're like, But you're 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 just this kid. Like you're you're not a warrior, you're not gonna be able to to do it. And he says, No, I'm gonna do it. So King Saul, the Bible says, comes to him and says, Well, at least wear my armor. And King David, he puts on the king's armor and it just doesn't fit him. He says, This is gonna slow me down. And he takes off the armor, he says, I'm gonna do what I learned to do in the wilderness. And he goes out to meet Goliath. Along the way, perhaps he bends down, picks up a couple of stones, and the rest is history. With his slingshot, he fells the giant with a stone between the eyes. Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book about uh, about this where he talks about that that stone was probably traveling like a fastball straight down the middle, close to 100 miles an hour, and David slew the mighty giant. And that put him on the path to greatness, to becoming king over Israel after King Saul. And it's David that unites the tribes, that after King Saul passes, the other tribes come to David. He's only the king over the tribe of Judah. And they say, David, we want you to be the king over all of us. And after David becomes the king over all of Israel, he moves his capital from Hebron in the tribe of Judah, just south of Jerusalem, to Jerusalem, to the city of David. And he makes Jerusalem his capital. And it's been the capital of the Jewish people ever since that time. A powerful king. A powerful king, but... Power, not just physically powerful, but morally powerful. Because David was a flawed character in the sense that he stumbled spiritually, morally at times. But what set David apart from so many other kings in the Bible, Jewish or otherwise, was that when he was confronted with his shortcomings, he would immediately take responsibility for them. And I believe that is why God said to David... That is, with you I'll have an everlasting covenant. Not because you're perfect, because King David wasn't perfect, but because when King David stumbled, whether it was with the story of David and Bathsheba or others, where he immediately, when confronted with the sin, he said, I've sinned before God. Tell me what I need to do to make it right. In the city of David. In the city of David. Was built
0: when he was king. Who was his son?
3: His son was Solomon. What did he build? Solomon built the temple atop the Temple Mount, just north of the city of David. And you can actually see these things,
0: touch these things, feel these things, which is exactly why the enemies of your country, and quite frankly, my country, don't want these things seen. They don't want the excavation. They don't want the history. They reject the Bible. Whether you're a literalist or not, Clearly, these things are in the Bible. And I say that as somebody who is, look, I'm Jewish, but I'm not the greatest adherent to my faith, but I'm a Jew, just as others are Evangelical Christians or Catholics or what, are, what have you. And it's in the Bible, and you go to this part of the world, and there it is. The work you and your folks are doing is unbelievable. And it's crucially important for mankind, whether the New York Times, the Palestinians, the EU, uh, UNESCO, THINK, or otherwise. Nobody's going to remember them a thousand years from now. They'll remember what you're doing. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. All right. Folks, that's Zev Orenstein, Director of International Affairs, the City of David. Check them out, cityofdavid.org.il, cityofdavid.org.il. They can use your help. If you want to give them a donation, it's right there. Read all about them. We'll be right back.
1: Casting from the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin.
0: Hello, America. Mark Levin here in Israel. We won't be taking any calls, but I am presenting you with what I think are some of the greatest programming in America today, if I say so myself, so I will. I'm here with a wonderful gentleman, military man, hero, retired British Colonel Richard Kemp. How are you, sir?
1: I'm all the better for seeing you again, Mark, well, particularly here in this wonderful city of Jerusalem.
0: Well, it's a, it's a great, great pleasure. You're an expert in a lot of things. First of all, I wanted to introduce the American people a little bit to your background. Tell us about your background, particularly in Afghanistan.
1: Well, I'm a, a former British Army officer. I spent 30 years In the British Army. I left school one day and I joined the Army the next, didn't go to university. Uh, And I then spent virtually all of that 30 years fighting terrorism, often hand in hand with United States forces and United States intelligence services. Um, And I was lucky enough um, back in 2003 to be the commander of British forces in Afghanistan. Uh, And in that role, I worked very closely with, again, with the Americans, particularly the 10th Mountain Division and their commander at the time, who is now the Chief of Staff of the United States Army, General Mark Milley, a wonderful, wonderful military officer. Uh, And we, together, not only trained the Afghan national security forces, we also disarmed some of the uh, warlords and the groups that were supporting them and reintegrated them back into Afghan society. And we also attacked Taliban and al-Qaeda terrorists uh, in Afghanistan at that time. And Uh, I I was very fortunate in being able to put together a joint intelligence operation with the United States Marine Corps, which saw the successful arrest and imprisonment of a number of al-Qaeda terrorists. Uh, And after that, I spent some time working um, pretty much at the top level of British intelligence in the Prime Minister's office in London, working very closely with the United States intelligence services, mainly the CIA, and also... Uh, our intelligence services out here in Israel, Mossad.
0: And yet you have really tremendous affinity for the state of Israel. Where did that come from?
1: Well, I, as I mentioned, I worked quite closely with Israeli intelligence during my career, at the end of my career in particular, and also the Israeli Defense Force. And the British Army studied, when, in, when I was an officer cadet at Santos, which is our West Point um, we we spent a lot of time studying the operations of the Israel Defense Force, more than any other army at that time, because of the nature of what we were training for and what they were doing. In other words, armoured warfare, in their case, against the Arabs out here in the Middle East, in our case, against the Russians in Europe. Uh, so we we did everything we could to learn from them. Um, so I had a long affinity and respect and admiration for the IDF, as do pretty much every British Army officer and soldier serving retired that I know. And that really began, I think, my um, admiration and my, my um, decision to, to, to do my best to stick up for Israel when it was being so badly maligned in the face of uh, attacks from uh, Hamas and other terrorist groups in Gaza soon after I left the armed forces. And the media, academia, political leaders international organizations like the UN and the EU were doing their best to lie and spread malicious propaganda against Israel. Now, I knew different and I was also in a very lucky position of being an, an officer with 30 years military experience so I could bring those two things together to bring an objective perspective to what the IDF was really doing. A
0: lot of questions for you. Why why do you think Europe generally in so many ways, is so hostile to the state of Israel?
1: <laughs> well, it's it's a very interesting and a very complicated mm. question, which I could talk about all night. But the, 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 the are, there are different issues here, one of which is the UK. And the UK, I look at as separately to to the EU and to the rest of Europe, because I think it is. I'm a fanatical Brexiteer. I want us out of the EU as soon as we possibly can get there, although people are doing what they can to keep us locked into it. But the UK has a... A tremendous historical relationship with Israel, um, positive and negative. On the positive side, we brokered the Balfour Declaration in 1917, which was the first international political instrument, which, which was signed up to by the United States and other countries as well, to, um, to, to reestablish a Jewish national homeland in the land of Palestine. It was only possible to do that, despite the political will at the time, it was only possible to do that because the British armed forces, together with Australians and uh, New Zealanders and uh, French, some French, um, defeated the Turkish Ottoman Empire here in Palestine. By spilling our blood, we conquered them and threw them out. And that included, by the way, a Jewish legion made up of Jews in the British army from the United States of America, from Britain from the land of Palestine itself. So we threw them out of here and that enabled, it was the, I think the major factor that eventually enabled the recreation of the State of Israel in 1948. Britain went through some bad times after that with Israel and we, we actually blockaded and prevented Jewish people from leaving Europe who could come here and take refuge here in Europe during the Holocaust. And in my view, thousands of Jews died because we prevented them coming back here. Since then, after that period, we've now got a, a very, very close relationship with Israel militarily and in intelligence terms. So that's Britain, and, and Britain, I think, is, is very locked closely into Israel. And we were talking earlier about the City of David, and one of the, the – Zev, I think, mentioned, the, the guy that you interviewed just now, mentioned that uh, the first excavation of the City of David was by a British army captain um, in 1867 – and so there is that close link. The rest of Europe, well, we, we all know what Europe's like. And the, the, the Germans and the French in particular, they, 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 they hate, I have to say this bluntly, uh, I may may not make me popular, but they hate the United States of America. They really do. They have never forgiven the United States of America, in the case of Germany, for defeating them in 1945. And in the case of France, for saving them in 1945. It's a bizarre situation, but that's the fact. And that is one of the reasons why they are anti-Israel, because they see Israel today, they see it as a, a kind of imperial outpost of the United States. There's a lot more complexities than that. There's tales of anti-Semitism, there's the fact that Israel is a very strong uh, country today, and those people who are trying to defeat Israel are very weak. In other words, the Arabs, whichever part of Arabs they are. Um, So there's lots of complexities. But I think fundamentally, it boils down in Europe to the, as with many other people, to the fact they see um, Israel as a proxy of the US, which they can quite openly attack, um, not not militarily, but verbally and politically. um, But they are not able to do that with the US.
0: And this is reflected in the EU, it's reflected at the UN, it's reflected in UNESCO and these other international sort of global institutions. The BBC in particular seems extremely hostile to the state of Israel. Is it like our New York Times? It's just – it's an ideological issue, you think?
1: I think, And they're I think,
0: hostile to you, too, by the way.
1: Yeah, I think <laughs> uh, I, I enjoy people being hostile to me. I spent my entire life fighting off hostility, so I'm, I'm happy with it. For me, I'm not happy with the hostility of the BBC towards the state of Israel. Um, and it has maintained a consistently hostile line to Israel. It corrupts. It distorts. It tells half-truths. It doesn't tell the story in many cases. And, for example, I mean, it's the same, I think, with The New York Times and sometimes with CNN that, you know, if Israel is attacked and carries out a retaliation, the first part of that story is Israel's retaliation, not the fact that it was attacked. It's a common theme. Um, and I've, I've spoken to journalists um, in the BBC and in Sky, which is another major broadcasting corporation in the UK, who tell me they agree with whatever I say about Israel. They agree with it completely, but they're not allowed to say it themselves because they'll get fired if they do, which shows you, I think, the institutional bias against Israel in organisations like the BBC. And by the way, because they know my agenda on Israel, they know they know that I am not uh, an anti-Israel person. I try and be impartial, I try and be objective, but they see me as being pro-Israel and certainly not anti-Israel. They will not interview me if they can possibly avoid it on the subject of Israel. They don't want to hear... Any side except their own.
0: Now, you've been threatened, right? Al-Shabaab, part of Al-Qaeda. Um, and others, I suppose, in Britain who have been outspoken like you have been threatened as well. What's that like?
1: Well, a, f- a few years ago, I, was, I received a call from um, our police uh, counterterrorism squad and I had a visit from one of their officers who told me that, My name had been discovered on a death list that al-Shabaab, as you say, a part of al-Qaeda, that had been discovered uh, by them. Um, And therefore I was in their crosshairs. Well, frankly, I'm very pleased to be in their crosshairs. And I'm also extremely pleased to be in the crosshairs of the anti-Semites in the UK who are anti-Semitic, anti-Israel. And if they hate me and if they uh, abuse me and they want to attack me, then that means that I'm doing the right thing because the nature of their view is hateful and discriminatory and prejudiced and aggressive against Israel, which after all in the case of Britain is one of our greatest and most important allies in so many ways. So what I say to those people is bring it on. You can come and get me if you want. I'm delighted if you do. I'm
0: not. (laughs) Let me ask you this um, when we come back. You talk about this relationship – between Britain and Israel I want to pursue this a little further this, this military intelligence relationship between Britain and Israel and I suppose the United States too. We'll be right back Mark Lovin Welcome back folks Mark Levin here with retired British Colonel Richard Kemp. It's an honor to have him here with me. Uh, Colonel Kemp. Richard, let's admit it. We're friends.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I've been Uh, called worse. Okay.
0: (laughs) Um, British intelligence, Israeli intelligence, United States intelligence, all work together?
1: Very, very closely. And And the
0: military too?
1: And the military as well. And I'd say... British and American intelligence and military cooperation are probably the tightest of any two countries in the world, with the possible exception of America and Israel. And then I'd say Britain follows close behind with Israel. So the British and Israeli intelligence relationship.
0: How good is Israeli intelligence?
1: Israeli intelligence, I can tell you from my personal experience, is absolutely fantastic. It's gotta be one of, if not the best, intelligence services in the world. Obviously, compared to something like the CIA, it's much smaller much more tightly focused, um, they have to uh, have far stricter economies. But I think man for man, you'd be very hard pushed to find a better intelligence service anywhere in the world. And they, the, the, the thing that I always find fascinating about the Israeli intelligence service and the way that Israel is criticised is that almost every single country in this world, including here in the Middle East, including in Europe, including the United States of America, Australia... Every single country in the world virtually has had the lives of their citizens saved by British, by Israeli intelligence, provided to them by Israel. Uh, and when I was in Australia not so long ago, actually a year ago almost, um, while I was there, it became it came to light that Israeli intelligence had prevented uh, a, a plot to down an aircraft flying out of Sydney airport and, um, and and the Israelis discovered what happened, warned off the Australians, and they were able to stop it. It's that sort of thing that's going on all the time, a phenomenally important intelligence service.
0: It's such a tiny country. You know, the resources are limited, but they have to pour a lot of resources into intelligence, a lot of resources into the military. How do you think they're able to do this sort of thing? It's survival, I
1: guess. Well, interestingly, they they, they 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 are looking to save the lives of their citizens right on their own doorstep it's not a distant threat it's an immediate threat it's the same reason really why the IDF is such an effective army because they are faced by from all sides they're faced by hostility uh varying degrees but i think the other thing is and i hate to say this as a um as a as a, a roman catholic but i think the other thing is that the jews themselves are very good at intelligence Um, And uh, it's pretty well recognized that one of the main reasons why the German uh, army in the Second World War was so bad in intelligence, which is one of its greatest failings, was they didn't have any Jews in the German (laughs) intelligence service. So I think it's a combination of that immediate requirement of survival and the the genius of the Jewish people, which takes facts and makes of them what perhaps many other people aren't able to do.
0: Was there a recent event in which... uh Israeli intelligence and other intelligence agencies have been involved?
1: Well, in in Europe, um, in the last couple of weeks, two plots have came to light in which um, Hezbollah were found to have been Hezbollah being a Lebanese terrorist organization, which is essentially an extension of the Iranian state. They're funded, directed, controlled and were founded by Iran. Um, they, They were discovered to be um, stop manufacturing and stockpiling vast quantities of explosives uh, with a view of attacking in the United Kingdom and in France and other places, other countries. And let's not forget that Hezbollah and the IRGC, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, an organ of the Islamic uh, Republic of Iran, which the US has recently very, very rightly proscribed, um, the, these organizations and other proxies of Iran killed. Uh, over a thousand American soldiers and British soldiers as well in Iraq and Afghanistan at the height of the conflict over there. So this latest intelligence really just confirms the hostility that Iran has not just for America but also for Europe, a, a, a continent with governments and and the EU, which somehow, despite all this seems determined to try and appease Iran rather than confront it in the way President Trump is rightly doing. Let's talk about this,
0: Iran and appeasement. In my country, I don't know if it's a growing movement, but there is there's a part even within the Republican party of what I call the code pink Republicans. And that is look, we've been in many many wars, you're a commander in Afghanistan. There be, we've been in many many wars, America's tired of wars and so forth and so on. And I explain it's not a matter if you're tired of wars. We don't seek war. We're not an imperialist country. We're not a colonialist country. We're not the provocateurs, but there are evil regimes and evil people out there and you can't pretend they don't exist and they've existed since the beginning of mankind and you have to be prepared for them and at times confront them. But there's this growing movement in our country which is almost uh, counterintuitive. I mean, you're talking about a country in Iran that's talking about ICBMs with nuclear warheads. They don't need ICBMs with nuclear warheads to hit Tel Aviv. They need them to hit America and Britain, you know, other parts of Europe and so forth and so on. And this is an insane regime in Iran. What do you make of this?
1: The, the Iranians are um, determined to give themselves the capability of strikes, nuclear strikes against, as you say, the Middle East, but also Europe and the United States. and. When that happens, which it will happen if it's not stopped, when that happens, we're going to be in a completely different war. We're going to be in a completely different game. We can stop it now. Once they've got those nuclear weapons, that nuclear capability, we will not be able to stop it. And when we come
0: back, I want to ask you a question. Well, I'll ask you now. Let's get the answer when we come back, which is this. If Iran has the capacity to hit the continental United States or any part of the United States or Britain nuclear weapons. Is it, in fact, possible that they might well do so? We'll be right back. You know, demand letters from the IRS are hitting the mail. Now, if you owe back taxes, you may be receiving one soon. And when it arrives, you'll have questions like, is it true the IRS can garnish my paycheck? Can the IRS really take my home and bank accounts? Can they get my retirement savings? Yes, to all those questions. The IRS can do that and a lot more. But there is a way out. It's called the Fresh Start Initiative, an official government program for tax debt assistance. And nobody knows more about the Fresh Start Initiative than the award-winning experts at Optima Tax Relief. Optima's mission is to stand between you and the IRS. Fighting to help protect your paycheck and assets and helping you get the best deal possible. But don't delay, because the IRS can tack on hefty penalties and interest every day. Call Optima now for your free consultation while you still have options. Call 800-499-6300, 800-499-6300. That's 800-499-6300. Some restrictions apply. For complete details, please visit OptimaTaxRelief.com. Colonel Richard Kemp, retired, British, Mar- British Army. We're talking about Iran. If Iran gets ICBMs, it sure looks like they're close. And they've passed a new threshold actually today with respect to their nuclear activity. And they get uh, ICBMs with uh, nuclear warheads on it. You think it's possible they may actually launch them?
1: Uh, I think there's no doubt if Iran had control of nuclear weapons, it would be ready to use them in a way that we sometimes can't imagine because we we think about nuclear deterrence as we thought about it, let's say, between the United States and Britain France and the Russians. But Russians like them or don't like them, they think rationally, they think like us. The Iranians don't think like us. The Iranians, I, I'm absolutely certain the Iranians would be prepared to sacrifice thousands or even millions of their own people if they had the chance to strike at the great Satan, the U.S., or at the little Satan, Israel, or even an intermediate Satan like Britain. They would be very happy to do that. They don't think as we think. They don't hold human life dear in the same way as we hold it dear. They're, they're thinking well in, in different, completely different ways to us. Uh, and so it's, it's not good enough, in my view, it's not good enough for us to say, well, let's try and keep them into this this deal, which, as we heard earlier in this program, that the deal itself actually paves the way to a nuclear armed Iran, as Ambassador Dermer mentioned. Uh, and it's not good enough to to simply say we won't deal with it now, because what we're doing by that is we're consigning that decision and that danger to our children, and that danger will face our children. I mean, this country we're sitting in now, Israel, in previous years destroyed the nuclear program of Iraq and the nuclear program of Syria. If either of those two countries had still had a nuclear program when we were in hostilities with them, then it would have been a very different story. The the United States would not be able to use its military power for the good of itself and of the world if it was faced by the very real prospect of a nuclear strike against it. And that's why I think it's so important that we confront this threat that we face now in the way that President Trump has been doing and in the way that European countries have been doing their best to avoid?
0: I I just shake my head because, you know, we have kids, grandkids, future generations, and we're going to rely on the good sense of the Iranian regime to determine whether or not we're hit with nuclear weapons. I mean, and it's not just that. They have these front groups, Hezbollah and others that you talk about who's to say they won't use other forms of nuclear uh, weapons other kinds of attacks you know i'm not i'm not trying to be provocative i'm not trying to a uh, scaremonger here this is a reality with this country it's a reality with with the leaders of this country what they're capable of and yet i really do shake my head given what we've all been through in world war 2 You see the rise of certain regimes and people have wondered, why wasn't something done earlier? Why wasn't something done earlier? I feel like I'm hearing the same voices. I mean, they're not exact parallels, but I feel like I'm hearing the same voices of isolationism, honestly, of anti-Americanism, people creating conspiracies, irrational, ideologically driven arguments on why we shouldn't be on guard and deal with this.
1: You made a great point about... Um, other possible options for attack apart from an ICBM nuclear attack. And that, I think, is one of the possibly even a greater danger than, than, than missile uh, use is, is that Iran Iran is, is the world's leading expert. First of all, it's the world's worst supporter of terrorism. And secondly, it's the world's leading expert on carrying out attacks in a deniable way. In other words, using proxies, not using forces identifiable to themselves. Um, and there's no question if they had nuclear weapons, we, would be, we should be concerned that they might dis- disseminate small nuclear munitions to some of their proxy groups like Hezbollah and other, you know, other, other proxies they have in the Middle East and around the world. They, they, as, as I mentioned earlier, we've seen uh, an example of them planning to carry out massive conventional explosive weapons attacks in Europe. Well, why wouldn't they do the same in nuclear if they could get away with it? I think they probably would. And and in terms of um, of going back to the past and and the dangers the horrors we've seen the Second World War etc as you mentioned, Europe is a continent, um, today of appeasement, and a lot of Americans I talk to say, well, how can Britain appease a country like Iran? Britain, the one country that stood up to Hitler, well. I'm always uh, mindful of the fact that actually it wasn't Britain that stood up to Hitler. It was one man in Britain that stood up to Hitler, Winston Churchill. Very few of the people around him were prepared to do that. It was him who stood face to face with Hitler and persuaded one or two others to come with him and then in turn led Britain and then America and other countries to eventually defeat the Third Reich. But we don't have a Churchill today. We have... In many cases, we have weak leaders throughout Europe. We have leaders in Europe who, um, who would much rather kick the can down the road. They don't want to confront it. They don't have the courage, the physical or moral courage, to confront this kind of threat. Which brings me to politics, if I may.
0: <clears throat> in your country, Britain, the Labour Party headed by this fellow Corbyn, my country, I see the Democrats who are lined up to run, These are two very scary scenarios. Should uh, Corbyn become prime minister? Should any of these Democrats become president? Then I look here in Israel. You've got a tremendous prime minister, (coughs) excuse me, Netanyahu. Um, I mean, we could conceivably see a time within the next two years. I, I pray to God I'm wrong. Where Trump's out and one of these Democrats is in where Corbyn's in, and where Netanyahu's at. That could change the face of much of the
1: world, couldn't it? Well, I think it certainly could. And um, the, 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 in, in, if you look at Britain alone, um, I mean, we've we've currently, I don't, I don't know how closely your listeners follow British politics, I suspect not quite as closely as some of us do in Britain, But and why should they? But um, it Depends if the royals have a baby or something. <laughs> like that. yeah, that's by far the most important part. But actually, we're obviously coming up to a couple of days time when we cease to um, be so important politically in the United States of America on the 4th of July when you, you we, we agreed to leave and, uh, <laughs> and let you carry on with uh, governing your own country right. but uh, we're hoping for, for an event of the same type ourselves because we are not a democratic country anymore, we are we don't have sovereignty, we are part of the European Union and one day I hope soon we will have our own Independence Day we can celebrate in the same way as you celebrate the 4th of July Um, but we're currently going through a leadership election in Britain for the Conservative Party and whoever wins that leadership election will take over from Theresa May as Prime Minister. The front runner right now is Boris Johnson. Um, I I, I think people are pretty confident he will become the Prime Minister. He then, whether he's good or whether he's bad, and I think he's pretty good, he then faces the problem of Brexit. Uh, And again, I'm not going to bore you with the complexities of it, but... Believe well, it or not, my audience knows about it. Yeah, I, I guess. And, w- and we sit here in
0: disbelief yeah. that the British people vote one way and the British Parliament can't seem to get this
1: done. It's incredible. The British, in the, in the, the greatest democratic mandate that Britain, the British people has ever given in any time in our long, long democratic history, um, Britain decided to leave the EU. And we have got media, we've got Parliament, we've got, cabinet ministers we had a prime minister we still have that same prime minister we have senior civil servants we've got the heads of all the main what what i think might be termed as the swamp in the u.s the deep state we've got the heads of all those organizations which are trying their best to overturn that mandate um and when boris if boris johnson becomes prime minister he has undertaken he will leave the EU at the end of October this year. Now, he's got a massive struggle to do that. Massive struggle. And we're not even talking about the fight the EU's putting up to try and keep us in, which they are. Uh, And that's not, by the way, because they love the Brits. They don't. They hate us, actually. They really do dislike us. Um, The reason they want to keep us in is because they want to deter other people from following our path out of the EU. But Plus, they like telling you what to do. They, well, of course they do. They yeah. love it. They love it, as we used to love telling you what to do. <laughs> <laughs> um, but they'll hopefully learn, as we learn, that that's not going to go on forever. But the, the reality on this issue is that um, if things don't go in a certain way over Brexit, then there could be uh, a, a vote of no confidence in Parliament against Boris Johnson, which could see a, uh, a general election maybe even before the end of this year. And that general election potentially could see Corbyn as the Prime Minister of Great Britain before the end of 2019. Tell the
0: American people briefly, well, actually with like 30 seconds, who is Corbyn?
1: Corbyn is um, the leader of the Labour Party in the UK, the Socialist Party. It's now a Marxist party under his control. You, you should probably think of him in, as, in similar terms to Bernie Sanders. He's that kind of character, probably similar sort of age as well. And um, how is it that he
0: leads the Labour Party or any party for that matter?
1: (laughs) Well, it's a really good question, which uh, many of us in Britain and even many people in the Labour Party are wondering about themselves. Um, Again, it's a complex situation by which he got in. But he – when he succeeded in uh, taking over the leadership of the Labour Party, he then turned it from being a fairly respectable – political party, not something everyone would agree with, but a respectable mainstream political party, now into being a nutjob, anti-Semitic, hard-left Marxist uh, organization which wants to turn the whole country into a Marxist state. We'll be right back. Mark Levin.
0: Demand letters from the IRS are hitting the mail. Now, if you owe back taxes, you may be receiving one soon. And when it arrives, you'll have questions like, is it true the IRS can garnish my paycheck? Can the IRS opt down iron-fisted health care system with a very deceptive name? Likewise, when you hear the term binding arbitration for drug pricing, don't be fooled. It's not what it sounds like. Binding arbitration is a cost-focused, not care-focused system run by unelected bureaucrats. That's right. They're going to decide what American seniors can get, what they're going to pay, if Medicare will cover it. If Medicare exists, it's a disaster. The effect will be the permanent and binding price controls. That's what it will be. I've been warning you about this. Like the European socialist healthcare care models, binding arbitration will deny patients the latest and best treatments. Imagine the nightmare of having unelected government bureaucrats Deny your sick child or parent the drug that would save them because it was deemed too expensive. Fortunately, Americans have access to the most innovative drugs because up until now, we've had a relatively free market. But if dumb ideas like government-set price controls are imposed, we won't. Binding arbitration is drug price controls. The same bad idea under another name. Get the facts. Go to truehealthcarefacts.com. That's truehealthcarefacts.com truehealthcarefacts.com we're back my friend retired british colonel richard kemp i bet you love your healthcare system in britain don't you? <laughs> that's fantastic <laughs> <laughs> well i wanted to ask you something john bolton is coming under a lot of attack from the code pink republicans and the hard left in this country a lot of this propaganda really is pushed out into the west by the iranians and and others uh, the Secretary of State comes under a tap, Pompeo, and, of course, the President. How do you think the President, the Secretary of State, and our National Security Advisor are doing?
1: Well, I, I, I know John Bolton in particular extremely well, and I've also met Mike Pompeo. I haven't yet had the pleasure of meeting the President. But um, what you've got there, I think I, w- I would describe, in, in terms of national security, as the dream team. Because President Trump is not afraid of looking at a situation and coming to conclusions with his advisers, conclusions as to what what should be done. He's not kind of, as, as many previous presidents have, he doesn't feel locked into the way it's always been done. He's not a politician, he's not a diplomat, he does things his way. And I think we're seeing in the, the, the remarkable footage we saw in uh, North Korea with President uh, Kim... Um, You know, we saw an amazing situation we've never seen before. Now, what will become of that? None of us knows. But uh, it's got to be the way to go, I think, to be bold rather than to to sit back and be bounced around by situations that other people determine. And I would say the same of of John Bolton and Mike Pompeo. I think that neither of those are afraid to stick their chin forward and go into a fight. And that's what's needed. In this world, we've spent too long. There are too many leaders who, who want to appease, who want to be seen to be unduly reasonable, and allow themselves to be shoved around. And I think that has to end. And we're looking at a situation here in the Middle East, for example, where the previous president, President Obama, for some reason that is so hard to fathom, essentially handed on a plate a pathway to a nuclear weapon, to Iran. He pretended it was something different, but it wasn't. He also um, essentially took sides against the state of Israel, which is one of America's greatest allies. And, and you don't see anything of that with President Obama. I think with these kind of Trump, threats, Trump. I beg your pardon, yeah. with President Trump, I think in these kind of threats, um, in, the, in the kind of threats that the United States and the rest of the world faces, There's only one way to deal with that's confront it and, if necessary, shove it back, not to be pushed around by it.
0: What did you do in Afghanistan again? I just want to remind everybody.
1: (laughs) I was the commander of British forces in Afghanistan back in 2003.
0: This this myopic focus on Bolton, though, seems to be a propaganda campaign aimed at him. Does that suggest to you that he's incredibly effective?
1: He is effective. And let's not forget where – Much of this stuff comes from, yes, of course, um, in the same way as it comes from the left and and parts of the right, in fact, in Europe. It also comes certainly from the left in the United States. But it doesn't necessarily just start there or end there. Many of our enemies, like uh, Iran, like um, other, other countries in the Middle East and countries that want, even not directly our enemies, countries that want to take advantage of us, and including North Korea, Many of them, um, they, they, they feel clearly uncomfortable by the approach that's being taken by the US, driven to an extent at least by um, John Bolton at the moment. And so it's them that want to undermine these people. That's where a lot of the propaganda comes from, a lot of the tools against him. You can bet there are people in Iran now who are uh, trying to work out exactly how to bring Bolton down. And the people in the United States and the people in Europe who... Uh, who get involved in this, probably unwittingly in many cases, are mere instruments in a tool to bring down somebody who is prepared to stick up for the United States of America in the way it should be stuck up for.
0: And I think they don't give the president credit. The president is going to make the final decision. These people are important advisors to the president.
1: There's no question. Um, having worked in this area myself, bo- both involved in the, in the White House, but also more in 10 Downing Street... Um, the people that call the shots are the leaders, the, the advisors are the advisors, but they know where they really stand, and it's not making the decisions. It's, it's trying to persuade the, the leaders to make the right decisions.
0: It's been a pleasure, Colonel. God bless you, my friend. Thank you Thank for you. your service, Thank you, your country and ours as well. All right, folks, that's our program from Israel this Monday. I will be back on Wednesday, same place, same time again from Israel. I'm returning to the United States over the weekend. I hope you enjoyed the show. I know you'll enjoy one day's show as well. God bless each and every one of you. From the Westwood One Podcast Network.